Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And this will sound like a familiar passage to you. Uh, In fact, uh, other gospel writers also write about an anointing by a woman. Um, I am not convinced that they're all the same one, personally, because the details in them are different. Uh, But a lot of people have spliced them together. Uh, But I I think that Jesus was anointed on several occasions, and that a few of them were written down uh, for our benefit, and uh, because there was a lesson attached to them. And so we'll see what the lesson is for today on that. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance from burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful because you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and all virtue. Without love, whoever stands before you is accounted as dead. So grant for the sake of Jesus Christ that we might have that love and live it out in our daily lives just as Christ demonstrated his great love for us on the cross. Amen. About 15 years ago, there was a Dr. Pepper commercial that aired on television. It was pretty funny. Um, The ad featured this young man who was doing increasingly embarrassing things for presumably his girlfriend or wife or whoever it was. And the song in the background, uh, like he was holding a pink purse with like, you know, sparklies on it and stuff like that and other, you know, just increasingly like embarrassing things for a guy to do. 
And in the background, there was a song, I Would Do Anything for Love. I would do anything for love. Right? It's in the background. He's doing all these embarrassing things. And the final scene of the commercial is her reaching for his can of Dr. Pepper to take a drink. And at that moment, the lyrics shift. And it goes, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Right? And then he gets up with his can of Dr. Pepper and he storms off, right? Apparently sharing a sip of his favorite soda pop was too much, way too much for him to handle. M&M's made a similar commercial like five or six years later. Uh, you know, very similar commercial. They're both funny. Um, love, love can and will cause us to do some wild things. But it seems like everyone has a line For that young man, it was sharing his soda. In our text today, love causes a woman to do something extravagant, something reckless, something over the top, something extreme. Those who were standing around looking at what she had done thought to themselves, I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. Now Mark does something very fascinating in our text today. It's another sandwich, is what they call it. And Mark has several of these. And basically, the first few verses of Mark uh, 14, and then verses 10 and 11 of our text today, the first few verses and last few verses deal with the same thing. They're talking about this plot to kill Jesus. And then wedged into that sandwich in the middle, the meat of the sandwich, it describes something that could not be further away from the treacherous plot of the religious elite. So you have the the hate of the religious elite sandwiching the story of this beautiful, extravagant love of this woman and the sacrifice that she makes for Christ. And Mark is trying to show the vivid contrast between the love and the loyalty of this unnamed woman and the hatred and the disloyalty of Jesus' opponents which included one of his very own disciples. So as we consider this passage today, we really need to take stock of our own lives. We need to ask ourselves about our level of devotion to Jesus. Is there such a thing as too much devotion to Christ? The onlookers in our text today, they seem to think so. That's too much. That's too much. They preferred a much more toned down, a less over-the-top devotion to Jesus. One that was way more subtle than what this woman did. But how on earth can someone be toned down about their love for Jesus? Everyone should be over the top. Everyone should be over the top in their love for our Savior. What would you do for Jesus? Are you like this woman? Or are you like the others? I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't do that. The sad reality is that many Christians sing those lyrics. I would do anything for God, but I won't do that. There are things that are too far, too much, too costly. And as we study this text, those questions are going to come to the surface. And, and the thoughts behind them are going to arise in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. And we're going to have to deal with them at a very personal level. 
And we all know what the right answer is, right? What would you do for God? We all know the right answer because we all know the Sunday school answer. And the, the right answer is, oh, I'd do anything. But will you really live that? Will you really do it? And that's the question that we're going to have to wrestle with today. Not just knowing what the right thing to do is, but doing the right thing. Now, the Jewish feast of the Passover and unleavened bread were only two days away. And this was an annual celebration, which was for them to remember and to give thanks for God as he delivered the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus. You might remember that the feast includes the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, whose blood on the doorpost was the reason that the death angel passed over the homes where he saw that blood, sparing the lives of the firstborn children. All part of the tenth plague, right? It was the one that finally broke Pharaoh and and allowed the people of Israel to leave Egypt. And so, once a year, they would celebrate this, this great event that happened in their history. And this feast brought pilgrims in from all over the world back to Jerusalem to join the festivities. Historians say that the population of Jerusalem would be four or five times as many people as it normally would have. Just three chapters ago, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey in the triumphal entry. And people spread their cloaks on the road before him. And they put palm branches down in front of him. And they shouted with great joy, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people apparently loved to hear Jesus teach. In fact, we see Jesus in the temple and People are all around watching his interactions with the religious leaders while he teaches them. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there. It doesn't say it in the Bible, but I imagine some of those really good points Jesus made, the crowd was probably like, oh, okay, maybe not. But I feel like that's what I would be like if I were there. (laughs) If I could time travel back, I'd be like, mic drop. They'd be like, what's a mic? (laughs) Anyway, it's too cold for jokes. I get it. All right. In the shadows of this great celebration, there are these religious elite people. And the chief priests and the scribes, they were secretly looking for a way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. This desire had been growing since the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, way back in Capernaum in Galilee. At that time, the Sadducees and Pharisees, Mark chapter 3, verse 6 tells us, started to plot with the Herodians against him, trying to find a way to kill him. And after, so that's when it started, back in chapter 3, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then after Jesus enters the city and he goes to the temple and he clears out the temple, flipping over all the tables and everything like that, the religious leaders got so angry that Mark eleven eighteen tells us the chief priest and the scribe heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. And then here in chapter 14, their hate reaches its height and their scheming turns into action. But they didn't want to cause an uproar. They didn't want to cause a riot with this massive crowd for the festival. All they wanted to do was kill him. They didn't want to, they didn't want to you know, 
create a riot out of it. And so they were looking for this cunning, crafting, stealthy, sneaky way to trap him and kill him. So they thought, well, you know what, we'll just wait a while. The crowds will die down, then we can get him. It'll be much better at that point in time. But God had a different plan. You see, because Jesus was supposed to be the, the final Passover lamb, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, the one, that would, the one that would forever take away the sins of his people. And so he needed Jesus sacrificed at just the right time. Well, the scene shifts suddenly to the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. And, well, he was probably an ex-leper because you wouldn't be able to have dinner. You wouldn't be able to host a dinner party if you were a leper because no one could be near you. Um, And so Jesus had probably healed him, but he'd been a leper for so long that he'd picked up that nickname, I imagine. So so he was at the house of Simon the ex-leper hosting this meal before the Passover, and there may have been up to 20 people present at that at that, at that dinner, you had Jesus and the twelve, that's thirteen. Simon the ex-leper, that's fourteen. Bethany was also the home of some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he brought back from the dead. And they were probably at the dinner as well. So that's seventeen. And then you have probably his immediate family who was there, uh, of Simon the leper, ex-leper, and, uh, and then this unnamed woman was also there, this unnamed woman. So it is a decent gathering of people. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a private corner booth at, at uh, our local favorite restaurant. This was, this was kind of a big deal that was going on. And in front of this entire group, as they were sitting, reclining at the table, the text tells us a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured it on Jesus' head. Right? Now, Mark doesn't seem interested in naming the woman. He seems more focused on the good work that she has done. And I, honestly, I'm tempted to try and figure out who this woman is, um, because there's, like I said, there's other accounts and other gospels and different thoughts that people have had. But her identity is not important to Mark's story. In fact, I think that maybe he left her name out so that we would focus more on her action than on her. And so who it is must not be the point of the story. So I'm just going to leave it alone. And if you want to speculate with me some other time about who exactly this person is and what their name might have been, I'm game for it, but not right now. All right. When we read about this anointing, it seems odd to us because we don't really anoint people anymore. I do carry around usually a little flask, little glass flask of, of anointing oil. And uh, when people ask, uh, I will do that because the Bible in James says to ask, gather the elders together, anoint somebody's head with oil and pray for them. And so people who want to follow that, I offer that. Um, but I, I'm not going to like run up to you and just, I don't have a squirt bottle. I'm not going to like squirt y'all with 
anointing oil. But I'll do it if you ask. Um, not the squirting part, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Anyway. But it, in the ancient world, anointing was very common. Very common, especially at feasts. You would anoint the head of your guests when they arrived. And Jesus actually gets on to somebody about this in Luke chapter 7, verse 46, because they didn't do it. He says, you didn't anoint my head with olive oil. You didn't do it. It was whenever the woman was anointing his feet. And he says, you didn't anoint my head. What about Psalm 23? I'm reminded of Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 133, 2 indicates that the amount of the oil that was used could be quite a bit, actually. Though this woman pours an entire jar over Jesus' head, which even by the hospitality customs of the day is a lot. Uh, It's more than what was actually needed beyond the normal practice. And so in our text today, Jesus isn't as much anointed as he is drenched with this fragrant oil, this fragrant ointment. And there's several words that describe the content of that jar. First, it was no ordinary perfume. It was nard or spikenard. The oil used in this perfume was imported from the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. There was a certain plant. They used the root of it and extract from that root. And and the only place that it grew was the hills, the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, which is quite a distance from Israel. And you think, oh, that's, that's no big deal. We import things from places all the time now. But they didn't have cars. They didn't have shipping trucks. They had dudes with backpacks and camels horses and donkeys. So this would have taken months and months and months to get the, the plant and the extract from it to Jerusalem or to Israel. We're told also that it was very costly to obtain. Um, it was very expensive or precious, some texts say. Judas calculates the value for us at a year's wage. 300 denarii, it's about a year's wage. In fact, 300 denarii would have fed all the people at the feeding of the 5,000 because they said it would only cost 200 denarii to do that. It also says it was pure. That means there was no other additives to it. Sometimes what they would do is they'd take a small amount of this very potent, pure Um, fragrance, and they would dilute it into olive oil. And so you'd still get some of the fragrance, but it would last a lot longer. There'd be more of it there. But this didn't have any of that. It was pure, condensed, um, potent, not watered down at all. And the jar itself is very interesting. It would have looked something maybe similar to what's on the page. There's an alabaster jar from Cyprus. It likely had a long neck with two small handles. Early in the first century, a guy named Pliny the Elder remarked that the best ointment was preserved in alabaster jars. So this was the good stuff. This was the stuff that you couldn't just pick up at the store, you know, at the gas station on your way home. You know, they have the gas station colognes or whatever you can grab. This isn't that. This is very rare. This is very important, very very valuable. The jar itself would have been mined, the, the material, the alabaster, in Egypt 
in a city called Alabastron. So it made just, even the jar was rare and valuable. So you have this, you have the root of the plant, of the ointment coming from the Himalayans, and you have the jar itself coming up from Egypt, meeting somewhere in Israel, so this woman could have this valuable possession. And the jars were made in such a way that once they were opened, they would not be able to be resealed. Something like this perfume with all of its extravagance and all of the description that's given to it in our text meant that this is likely a family heirloom, something that was passed down from a mother to her her daughter. Maybe it was even uh, given as a marriage dowry, the thing that the woman brought with her into the marriage in case something happened to her husband. If he were to die, she could sell this perfume and she'd be taken care of for a year while she made other arrangements. Or or this perfume could have been um, used, like Jesus said in verse 8, preparing the bodies for burial after they have died as a special use. Regardless, it was probably her most precious possession. So let's take this scene in for a moment. Now we've kind of got all these little pieces. Let's, Let's put them all together here. While they're eating dinner, a woman approaches Jesus, which would have been against the social custom of the day. And then in front of the whole room of people, she breaks open an alabaster jar, a very expensive jar, filled with this very expensive oil. And she breaks it open, never to be sealed again, and pours all of it over the head of Jesus. She just doesn't do a little bit on Jesus and then a little bit on Peter and a little bit on James and John and Andrew and around the table. She probably would have skipped Thaddeus because, you know, you would. But she doesn't do that. She dumps the whole thing on Jesus. All of it. And this jar, this jar and this perfume isn't just something you'd carry around in your pocket on a daily basis. This is something that you would hide in the safe in your home. It's a year's wages. And so she had to have planned to do this. She heard Jesus was in town, that he, he was in Bethany, that he was at the house of Simon the leper, and she went to the safe place in their home, and she got this very expensive gift. She counted the cost. She weighed it out. She knew what she was doing. And this woman, she sacrificed her political correctness. She, she sacrificed her hope for a future because she wouldn't be able to use it to pay if something had happened to her husband or even if she was married at all. She wouldn't be able to take it into her marriage. Her financial security, if times got bad, sacrificed that. Her expectation of maybe a beautiful burial, like maybe, maybe there's nothing great that happened in her life, but she could save that back and the people could use that at her burial to bury her. And then people would know, they would, they would know that she had had this valuable, treasured possession. But she sacrificed all of that, taking the most valuable thing that she had and giving it to Jesus. And this is her way of telling Jesus what she thinks about him. For her, there was nothing too great to give to Jesus. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn, and he got it exactly right. He wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. So even if he owned all of nature and gave it to God, it wouldn't be enough. That's what what he says in his hymn. And then he said, 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Have you ever gotten hurt or sick around a child? Like, not the child's hurt or sick, but you were hurt or sick, and there's a child around. Now, children mostly, normally, are kind of, they're selfish beings. You know, they don't want to share anything with anyone. Mine is a favorite word of children. Mine, mine, right? And, and even if they're not playing with it, um, if somebody goes and barely touches it, they'll sprint over like they've been playing with it all day and grab it out of their hands. I'm playing with that. But one of the most, and, and probably the most um, treasured possession, is that stuffed animal that always brings them security and comfort and, and love into their life. They have it with them everywhere. But one of the most heartwarming things that I ever witnessed was when a parent felt bad, they didn't feel good, and the child brought their favorite stuffed bear and gave it to their parent to comfort them, to give them security, to help them feel good, because that's what helped them feel good and give them comfort and security. And so they give the most precious thing they have to show their care and their love and their hope that their parent will feel better. Have you seen this happen before? I have too. It's very sweet. If you haven't seen it yet, I hope you do one day because it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, this woman publicly shows how much she loves and cares for Jesus. This act of devotion, this act of sacrifice, it wasn't to impress the other people around her. She probably didn't even care or notice that they were there. And it wasn't to try and encourage them to one-up her gift, like, hey guys, I just gave a year's salary perfume. What are you going to give? Two years? Three? Four? What, you know, they couldn't have afforded it. They couldn't have afforded it. The perfume was very expensive. What's, what's a year's wages? Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000? And without hesitation, she just breaks it. And she opens it and pours it out all on Jesus. And in that moment, all she could think about was her love and gratitude for Christ. That's all she could think about. That's all she cared about. But you'll notice the crowd, they have a bad reaction. She does this beautiful thing, as some translations put it, but the response of the crowd doesn't reflect that it was that good. What is their reaction? It's indignation. And indignation always comes with a sense of self-righteousness. I know better, and I could have done better. You know, that was kind of the thought that they had. That's what self-righteousness is all about. I know better, and I could do better. And that's exactly what happens to this woman. They were expressing indignation to one another, and they began to scold her. Now, the Greek is really funny here because the word that's behind that, it means to snort like a horse. To snort like a horse. You know, like that. I guess that's how horses do it. I don't know. Right? Snort like a horse. So not only were they mad, but how mad were they? Snorting mad. Right? That's pretty mad. And why were they snorting mad? Because in their opinion, the perfume had been wasted. 
They said, this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Seems pretty righteous, doesn't it? Right? You can dump all 300 denarii worth of perfume on one person or sell it and help out maybe 300 people. But do you know who questions the apparent waste? Do you know who said, that's too much? That's over the top. That's too extravagant. Do you know who did that? Well, the story in Mark's gospel doesn't tell us, but in John's gospel it tells us Judas did that. He says, that's too much. He started the question, that's too much, Jesus. That's, that's too much. Don't be like Judas, by the way. Their question sounds reasonable at first, right? It sounds reasonable. They wanted to help the poor. In fact, one of the expectations around the Passover festival was giving charity to the poor. That was an expectation. When you came to Jerusalem, you were going to give alms, give to the poor. And so that's what any good person would do, right? They would help the poor. But this woman was displaying her great devotion to Jesus, and to anoint him in this way would have been a great honor to him. She loved Jesus so much that there was nothing that she wouldn't give or do for him. Do you love Jesus that much? That there's nothing that you wouldn't do or give for him? Notice Jesus' response to the <clears throat> of the rest of the crowd. Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus here isn't saying helping the poor is bad. and In fact, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying, help the poor, help the poor, help the poor. And so he can't be tell- saying the poor don't matter here. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. What he's saying is that, that at this precise moment, she is doing something very special to a very special person. And she and they would have more opportunities in the future to help the poor, but they wouldn't have any other opportunities to show that kind of extravagant love to Jesus. So if there was going to be a time for her to show her extravagant love to Jesus, now's the time. That's what he's saying. She had her timing right. I like how one person wrote about it. He said, Some are willing to be poor in their possessions, in order to be rich in their devotion to Jesus. Some are willing to be poor in their possessions in order to be rich in their devotion to Jesus. In a world where most people are self-absorbed and care more about what they can get rather than what they can give, I think that we need a revival of selfless love. It was God's extravagant love for us. It was his extravagant love for us that sent Jesus to die for our sins. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We, didn't, we could do nothing to obtain it. It was too much. He died in our place. That's too much. That's extravagant. But it's that kind of extravagant love that is so deeply needed by people in our world today. Two quick statements, and then we got to move on. First, when she broke open the jar and poured out the ointment, the beautiful fragrance would have filled the entire house. It would have filled the entire house. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. When I was a youth pastor, we'd take trips with the teenagers on a bus, and the bus that we had was an old greyhound. And the windows didn't open. There was air conditioning, though, but there was no... Couldn't open any of the windows, so what was inside was inside. And invariably, every single trip, some kid, even though we'd say don't do it, would spray some perfume on or cologne. And the smell of that would fill the entire bus, and you couldn't escape it. And you, like, almost died choking on it because they, you know, middle schoolers, They use way too much, right? They use way too much. And so it filled the entire bus. And this fragrance would have filled the entire house. And every time somebody came over and visited the house, (coughs) they would have smelled it. And every time they left the house, it would have been all over their clothing. And people would smell it and they'd go, what's that fantastic smell? What's that all about? And it would give them the opportunity to point those people to Jesus. And that's what Paul says we are in the world. We're the fragrance of Christ in the world. We get to point people to Jesus when they smell that fragrance in our life. It's incredible. Second, if you know someone or if you have spent a year's salary on perfume, I want to meet you or the person that you know that's done this, because I just want to know, want to know what 30,000 bucks smells like on a person. Don't know what that would smell like. I imagine it would be incredible. So if you know somebody that spent that much money, you know, they say spend like two months, three months salary on a ring, which I think is also ridiculous, but a year's salary on perfume, that, it's, it's got to be the best smell in the world, right? So if you know somebody that's done that, I want to meet them so I can smell them. Not in a weird way, but I just want to know what it smells like, okay? All right, now we got to move on. Jesus must have noticed, he must have noticed how the scolding thank you was affecting this woman. The scolding that, you know, that she was getting. And she may have even started to think to herself, did I make a mistake? Should I have not given this gift, this extravagant gift to Jesus? Should I, should I have done something different? Something less? And Jesus doesn't get on to her. Instead, he chides the scoffers. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. In verse 8, Jesus explains, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for my burial. The woman likely just wanted to show her love and devotion to Jesus, But Jesus interprets it in light of his coming impending death. He had already told them he was going to die three times. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 33. Told them three times he was going to die. They still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. And her extravagant act not only showed her devotion, but it served as a preparation for his burial. And we'll see in a few weeks like a few Sunday weeks, but it's only a few days in the actual text. In a few weeks, we're going to study about his death. And we're going to find out that they were not able to properly prepare his body after it was taken off the cross. They're going to have to come the next day in order to do it. And so this 
extravagant gift of love from this woman would have served as a pre-death preparation for the body of Jesus. This act that the crowd scoffed about, Jesus praises. They called it a waste, but Jesus called it a noble, beautiful, good thing. Jesus also says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. She did everything that was in her power to do. That's what the Greek text says. And it echoes back to the widow in chapter 12, verse 44, who has put in everything she had, which was only two small coins, all she had to live on. Everything that she had the power to give. Both of them. And the actions of these two nameless women are similar actions because each of them made a great sacrifice to God. The widow put in all that she had, and this woman pours out all that she has. Even though the amounts of the gifts were different, the sacrifice was the same. It was everything. The sacrifice was everything. Both women then serve as examples of total commitment to God that holds nothing back. Everything that was in their power to give, they gave. And I'm wondering today if those who are God's people are really doing all that they have the power to do. If they're doing all that they could do. That's what God asks of us. He asks us to do all that we can. In honor of this woman's extravagant love shown to Jesus, he says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The fragrance of that jar of perfume that was broken that day has drifted across the centuries by the Holy Spirit. And the sweetness of her gift reminds us today of the honor and the sacrifice that we need to make to Jesus Christ in our own lives. Well, Mary gives her best in love and devotion to Jesus, but Judas gives his worst in hatred and in disloyalty. And so here we come to the here we come to the last piece of bread for our sandwich this morning. It says he went off to the chief priest to betray Jesus. You see the chief priests had a problem in verses 1 and 2. They didn't want to they didn't want to create a riot within the city and so they were looking for this sneaky stealthy way to to get Jesus and kill him without anyone really knowing about it. And Judas solves that problem by approaching them. And when he does, it says they were glad. Oh, our problems are answered. Our problems are solved. And they settle on an amount of money. And it says that Judas started to look for a good opportunity to betray him. And every single time that I study the betrayal of Judas... A question always comes up in my mind, and it all, somebody always asks it. Why? Why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did he do it? And there have been a lot of answers that have been given by speculators across the years. But the truth be told, there's no, there's no reason given in the text. Not one. None of, none of the stories of betrayal give us any clue as the why Jesus betray, or Judas betrayed Jesus. The only, thing, the only thing that we have, Luke and John say that he was under satanic control. 
That's the closest thing that we have to an answer. That's the only why he's under satanic control. Why did Judas do it? All we know is that he was under the power of Satan. That's it. That's all we're told. And, and we can try and think of other things that may have contributed to that, but we're not told anything about him. The reason doesn't seem to be important, just that he had done that. But I can't think of anything else that is a greater contrast than the story of Jesus' betrayal sandwiched around the beautiful act of extravagant love at Bethany. I mean, couldn't be polar, more, anything more polar opposite than those two things. Judas has forever been memorialized because of his betrayal. And this unnamed woman is forever memorialized because of her extravagant love for Jesus. You know, as I think about this, this incident, this event, I think I, I want my heart to be the same as that woman. I want to have the same heart as that woman in Bethany. But when I look in the mirror, I often feel more like Judas because my actions betray my words of love that I've spoken. See, she didn't say a word. She just acted in love toward Jesus. And Judas had said lots of words, but his action showed where he truly was with Jesus. Let me ask you the same question I already asked you at the beginning of the message today. What would you do for Jesus? What would you do for Jesus? See, that's the underlying question of the text. It's asking where your heart is today with Jesus. Where is your love for Jesus? Where is your affection for Jesus? Does it ever reach the point where it, where it overflows in extravagant acts of love and kindness? Does it, does it make you do things that everyone else thinks, well, that's just a waste? Why are you wasting your time? That's just a waste. That's what they told the woman. That's just a waste. But the text tells us that sometimes that's exactly what is necessary. The overflow of extravagant love. And it makes us ask, have we given all of ourself to Jesus? How much is too much devotion to Christ? I don't think there's a limit. I don't think you can be too devoted to Christ. The sad truth is that I believe we're good at giving Jesus our leftovers. The end of the day the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the year. Whatever we have left, we're like, okay, I'll give that to God. But the picture from these two women is that, it, is that they give everything. And it didn't matter what size gift they gave. What matters was they gave everything. They gave it all. They didn't hold anything back. And we ought to do the same thing. We should give our whole selves to Jesus, not holding anything back. Not only giving Him our leftovers, but giving Him all. We're called to to be inconvenienced for Him. We're called to risk everything for Him. We're called to sacrifice for Him. We're called to make extravagant commitments to Jesus where the world looks at our life and goes, you're crazy. That's crazy. You're going to go where? That's dangerous. You're going to do what? Don't you think that's a bad investment? 
But how much do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus as much as these women? That there isn't anything that we wouldn't do for him? Could you sing the lyrics of that song? I would do anything for love. And just that be the end of the sentence. Put a period there. I would do anything for love of God. I would do anything. But I know that in my life, I too often find myself finishing that lyric. But I won't do that. And maybe you do too. God, I'll do anything for you. But not that. That's why I'm standing up here this morning. Because I said, God, I'll do anything for you. I knew he wanted my life. I'll do anything for you, God, but I'm not going to be a preacher. Those dudes don't make any money. They're all weird. You know, <laughs> I was like, I won't do that. I actually, I actually get scared when I get up and talk in front of people. I still do. Get a little nervous. I hated it when I was younger. Hated it more than anything else. And I told God, God, I'll do anything else, but I don't want to be a preacher. And in God's sense of humor, he said, that's nice. You're going to go ahead and, you're going to go ahead and be a preacher. I'm like, oh, okay. He's retired now, but John, John Marshall was the pastor at Second Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. And he said it all the time in, in public, but we had a few times when I got to meet him uh, with some other people that actually knew him. I, didn't, I only knew of him through those people. But one time he told me, I asked him a question, and one time he told me, he said, the life that you've always dreamed of lies hidden in the ministry that you dread. The life you've always dreamed of lies hidden in the ministry that you dread. Oftentimes we tell God, God, I'll do anything for you but that. And the but that is the thing that brings us the most satisfaction in this life, the most joy in this life. It grows us the most spiritually. It advances us the most in the kingdom of God. It's that thing that we go, yeah, but I won't do that, that God wants to use to make you into the mature believer that he wants you to be. That he wants to use to change not only your life, but the life of this church. That he wants to use not only to change the life of this church, but the community in which we're serving in. It's that thing that we'll say, I'll do anything for you, God, but I won't do that. That's the thing that is going to change. That's the thing that's going to change everything. When we say yes to God, when we give Him our everything, when we won't hold back, when we don't allow that Judas heart to kick in and take over. You know what the best cure for that Judas heart is? The gospel. The gospel. Even if you're saved, that's, the, that's, the, that's what cures my heart whenever I'm like, I won't do that. That's too much. That's too expensive. It's going to take up too much of my time. That person's too messy. It's going to get so involved. It's going to wear me out, wear me down. I just think about the gospel. About the extravagant sacrifice that Christ made for me. For someone that didn't deserve it. For someone who, who, who couldn't even ask for it. Someone so lost and so dark in their sin. And He saved me by His grace. And changed me. And even though I didn't deserve the blood of Christ to cover over my sins and give me a new life, Jesus poured everything out 
for me? How could I not do the same for him? Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.